Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Hungarian paleontologist, geologist, ethnographer and spy, Franz Nopcsa. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunurong Bunurong people as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They're the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include an attempted shooting, mentions of racism against Albanians, discussions of World War I, including massacres of Albanian civilians during the war, a violent beating, a plane hijacking, mentions of chronic illness, historical homophobia and attempts at medical conversion therapy, discussions of mental illness, and discussions of a murder-suicide. Before we start, I also want to be upfront about the fact that Franz's life ended with his death by suicide. He shot his partner, Bayezid Almas Doda, and then himself, killing both men. We can discuss that when we come to it, but I'm telling you this now because I don't want it to be sprung on you or our listeners with any kind of shock value when we do get there. Franz Nopcsa was born on the 3rd of May, 1877, in the town of Deva in Transylvania. So it's geography time. <laughs> I literally <laughs> knew that, that was where this was going. Where's Transylvania? In Romania. It's in Romania, yeah. Where's Romania? It's very hard to convey where European countries yeah, I was like, are. It's, in- it's just next to the Black Sea, south of Ukraine. Yeah. You know, it's pretty big. So yeah. if you're looking at a map that doesn't have labels for some reason, it's the big one that fulfills <laughs> what I've described. Yeah. yeah, I think you've done a pretty good job. It's in like southern central Europe. I also was wondering if this was going to be like a trick question because, you know, we've already mentioned World War I. I'm sure that some borders are going to be in some varied places throughout Franz's life. It is a trick question because he was born in Hungary. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. was Transylvania in Romania? It's in Romania no. now. It's yeah. now in Romania, but at the time it was in Hungary and Hungary was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. Hungary was its own country within that empire, so it is still Hungary. Yeah. But... It's all under the umbrella of Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. At this time, is its culture Hungarian? Mixed. So France is Hungarian. His family would consider themselves Hungarian, but they've been there in Transylvania for centuries. They would consider themselves Hungarian. Some people in Transylvania would consider themselves Romanian. Okay. And it's possible from reading his family history that his family was Romanian who had then kind of taken on Hungarian cultural identity. Yeah. So, you know. It's complicated. It's not Um, the case that, like, Hungary owned a bit of land that was not really culturally Hungary, if that makes sense. No, it's a bit of land that's kind of between two groups and has belonged to one or the other Mm. over time. Yep. Yeah, Europe. So, Franz was the eldest of three children born to Alec and Matilda Nopcsa, who were both Hungarian aristocrats. He spent his early childhood living in the family castle in the village of Sochel, and then from the age of 11, he was educated at boarding school in Vienna, which is the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Or one of the capitals, Budapest is also a capital. When Franz was about 17, his 12-year-old sister Ilona came across some fossilized dinosaur bones on the family estate. Oh, okay. (laughs) Ilona brought the bones to Franz, who, as he describes it, feverishly began to search for more, eventually coming across an intact skull. I understand that's like a crazy find in terms of dinosaur bones. Is that true? Yeah, I think the area that he grew up in happens to be quite a rich area for finding dinosaur bones. Okay. But that is still a very exciting and pretty crazy thing to find, yes. Okay. 
What kind of dinosaur are we picturing? So it is called Talmatosaurus transylvanicus. Alrighty. Which means the Transylvanian marsh lizard. Is it big? How big is it? No, it's small. And we'll get into the smallness of the dinosaurs later on. But the dinosaurs around Francis Homer are noticeably small dinosaurs. Oh, that's That's a key fact to remember. (laughs) I'm so intrigued. (laughs) We'll come back later. How small? I don't actually know how big this one is, but I know some of them are like horse-sized kind of. So like still big for a lizard. Definitely big. Like if you were just out for a walk and this walked out, I would be like, "That is a dinosaur." Yeah, 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 yeah. They're not like those little ones in Jurassic Park that eat people at the all start right. of Jurassic Park Two. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. No, I'm getting a mental image now of this horse-sized lizard. Yeah, yeah. Do we still have this skull somewhere? Like, is it huh. a museum in Hungary or something? That's a good question. I don't know. So he took it to Vienna to show to one of his teachers and be like, "So what is this? Let's learn about dinosaurs." But I don't actually know what became of it. After that, he did have his own private collection during his life, which he sold off mostly to the British Natural History Museum later in his life. So it's possibly in London, but I don't know. So he took this skull and some of the other bones he found to one of his teachers in Vienna, Edward Zeus, who was a professor of geology at the University of Vienna. And he asked Edward if he could help identify the bones. Edward was interested, but due to a lack of funding, he wasn't able to come out to Transylvania or do any kind of investigation. So he suggested that Franz study the bones himself. And this was the beginning of Franz's passion for paleontology. How old is he at this time? I don't remember. 17. Okay. Around 17, maybe 18. A reasonable age, I guess, for your teacher to be like, why don't you go into paleontology? Yeah, so there was a man at the university who was meant to come out and do the research, and then the funding fell through, Mm. and they were like, "Mm, do it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So paleontology wasn't really formally taught at the time. It was a relatively new field. So Franz began to teach himself through books and through further excavations on the family estate. So when did paleontology start? started in the 1800s sometime but it hadn't really been like when france gets his phd which we'll discuss in a minute he gets his phd in geology and i think part of the reason for that is there wasn't phd in paleontology at the time so that was kind of the closest thing that fit in with what he was interested in yeah, I was going to remark when he took it to his geology professor or whatever. <laughs> it's like, I know he's going to be a paleontologist, but at this point, is he basically like, this is sort of a rock, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, mean, I think the two are very linked. Like, he does a lot of geology study that helps him be like, oh, mm. so this is the environment these dinosaurs were living in at the time mm. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I guess knowing geology does also help you, like, date bones. Yeah. So to quote Franz himself about his early studies, I learned day and night on work days as well as on holidays. The exhausting work threw me into a sickly condition, but at the end of the study year, my first manuscript was finished. So I came to the university and there became a paleontologist. Okay, well. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) You could have taken two years and relaxed so much. He, he, as you will see, is not a relaxed man. He's a very intense man. He gets very obsessed. This is a common trait of people on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we do discuss that a lot. Like, ruined your eyesight studying classics is like a recurring feature of this podcast. Yeah, well, he definitely made himself ill studying paleontology. So, a similar thing. So, what did doing all of this work, like, mean? Like, what is he doing? So, he's digging up a lot of bones in his family home. He identifies the skull which he's got, which at the time was an unidentified species. So, he, like, describes as much as he can about that species and tries to fit it in with the classification. They're doing a lot of work around classifying different Mm -hmm. newly discovered species and a lot of shuffling around of, oh, we thought this was this, but it's actually just a juvenile of this, or we put these bones together wrong and it turns out this Mm -hmm. is the same dinosaur as this. It's wild that they ever figured, like, 
make anything out about dinosaurs, to be honest. It is. It is pretty crazy. Dug some stuff up. We're like, well, I guess we're going to play Jigsaw now. And now there's like a whole thing. And now we kind of know what dinosaurs were. I guess it, like, the field does have the benefit of, you know, there's no dinosaurs around. So, like, if they're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. We'll never know. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I came across several stories of them being quite wrong, like, things like there was one dinosaur France was identifying and they'd found something that they thought was the brow ridge of the dinosaur, and they are like, okay, so this dinosaur had, like, a really bony brow. And then Franz came and was like, that's a jaw. Those ridges are what held the teeth in. <laughs> Whoops. And, like, that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. I've definitely heard stories before about them, like, matching the wrong head with the wrong dinosaur. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, like, putting it on the tail instead of the, like, neck. Yeah, that kind of thing. There's one story which I couldn't find a proper source for of him going into the British Museum and like seeing a mounted dinosaur skeleton where they put one of the like toes in back to front and he just kind of walked into the museum and was like I'll fix that (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny yeah unfortunately I don't know where that story came from but it could be true it kind of fits with what else we know about him and the field yeah so Franz continued his paleontology studies at the University of Vienna he gave his first public lecture at the age of 22, talking about the bones that he found in his family home and how he would classify them. And he would continue to work in paleontology for the rest of his life, over the course of which he would identify 25 new genera and species of fossilized reptiles. Aren't dinosaurs not reptiles? Don't they have feathers and stuff? <laughs> dinosaurs are reptiles. Interesting. Mm. Learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a dinosaur face when I was a kid. I didn't either, so... Yeah, no, not did I. I know Jace had a dinosaur face. Oh, why is Jace here then? <laughs> the person who's not here right now. Yeah. yeah. The only, like, dinosaur phase I had was that we had a dinosaur book that kids have, and it had those little pictures of, like, all the dinosaurs standing next to a person to show the scale. Yeah. And I was pretty obsessed with those, but I didn't know anything about dinosaurs. I just liked to look and be like, oh, my God, these were huge. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. So... Speaking of dinosaurs being huge, let's now talk about dinosaurs being small. (laughs) (laughs) I love that segue. So smooth. Yes. So one of Franz's key discoveries was the dinosaurs around his hometown, what he was excavating, were very small compared to similar dinosaurs in other areas. Interesting. So the local sauropod Magiosaurus dacus, for example, was about the size of a horse, as I mentioned before, whereas other dinosaurs in the same family could weigh up to 80 tons. Oh. How much does a horse weigh? (laughs) I think, like, the heaviest horse you could possibly imagine might weigh a ton. Like, the biggest draft horse in the world. Like, I realise that's a stupid question, but you gave me one unit in horse and one unit (laughs) in weight. I didn't really know what to do with that. That's fair. Okay, yeah, so one's one horse and one's, like, 80 horse. One's, like, you know, over 100 horses kind of thing. Okay, so why is it so little? So, Franz figured out that from around 100 to around 60 million years ago, the region around his home had been an island, now referred to as Hudsek Island. And the limited island resources led to animals in the area being much smaller because there was much less food and they could roam around less and get less food from wider areas. So, this theory is now known as island dwarfism. It was quite a new idea at the time. Interesting. Doesn't the opposite thing often happen Mm -hmm. where islands produce things that are unusually large because they like don't have the predators that they would have on the mainland? Yeah, no, both are true. There's island, I think it's called island gigantism and island dwarfism and they both exist. (laughs) (laughs) So how do they decide whether to become little or become big? (laughs) I guess it depends on the resources available on the island. Yeah, I guess if you're little because of predators, then you're going to become big. But if you're, you know... Big because of lots of trees. Then yeah. you become little. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. 
Okay, we've learned so much. Good science. I'm so sorry to any paleontologists who listen to this episode. <laughs> We're doing our best. Yeah. It's very hard to learn an entire biography and an entire field in a few weeks. Yeah. So the same species exist in multiple places, but they just happen to be little versions here? Or are they like similar types of dinosaurs and these ones are all just really little? I think they're generally similar types. So okay. the same family or the same genus. I don't think they're generally the same species, but I could okay. be wrong. I'm not yeah. sure. You know, they have the same species of brown bear in Europe and in America, but the ones in America can weigh like 800 kilos and the ones in Europe weigh like 200 kilos. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Just because there's they have- like mad salmon deposits in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How good. I love that the whole like immigrant stereotype of America is like a land where the streets are paved with gold is true but like only for bears (laughs) only for bears (laughs) yeah so the most notable part of france's research was that while most paleontologists at the time focused only on reconstructing dinosaur skeletons france began to look at broader questions around how dinosaurs may have looked and behaved in life According to Dakin Muntan, who's a Romanian science educator who's done a lot of work preserving France's legacy, France even created flip books to animate how he imagined dinosaurs might have moved. Oh, that's, oh, that's so cool. awesome. Yeah. It is very cool. Unfortunately, I could find no more about this than a mention by this guy in a documentary. Mm. So I hope those flip books are out there somewhere. Yeah, so I can make a little animation. Yeah, that would be yeah. very cute. I did come across some sketches he did of dinosaurs, which were pretty cute. Were they, like, realistic sketches or...? Both kinds. Okay. They were, like, very anatomical, like, this is the bone that I found sketches, and also just kind of little quick, you know, this is kind of the vibe of how I imagined they ran. Okay. Yeah. So that was the briefest possible summary of his paleontology career. So following his first lecture, at the age of 22, Franz set off on a tour of Europe to undertake paleontological research. On this journey, he met 18-year-old Croatian nobleman Louis Drushkovich. Was Louis also a paleontologist? No, Louis was in the army, I believe. He was some kind of military officer. All right. The two of them travelled together for a while. Francis' diary describes an early night they spent in Bosnia together. Both of us, Count Drushkovich and I, lay wrapped in our damp raincoat and waited for sleep to slowly arrive. Before sleeping, they'd covered the raincoat with zaccalin, which is a bright yellow insecticide powder. When they woke in the morning, they were, as France puts it, like yellow-coloured tangerines from the top of our heads down to the soles of our feet. I assume this was going to a game. <laughs> no. And instead, it's just that they looked a bit like tangerines. <laughs> I it was funny that they were yellow, that's it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I was a little bit guessing it wasn't gay because he called him Count, what's his name? No. It would be a little bit weird if you were having sex with someone while you referred to them by their, like, noble title. <laughs> I don't know how European aristocrats are. Maybe they yeah. think that's normal. Yeah, fair enough. I think he does also refer to him as Louis. I don't know how European names work because his name was also Ludwig. I don't know which one he would have actually been called. Okay, I don't really understand what you've introduced here, but let's move on. <laughs> Because Louis has nickname. Like, well, it's short for Ludwig. No, I think it's like that thing where, like, there's a lot of languages going around. Oh, and, okay. You know. He's got, like, a French name and a German name. Or yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay. that situation. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. I, <laughs> He's Louis. It's fine. All right, all right, Louis. <laughs> so France and Louis went their separate ways after this trip, but they would remain close until Louis's death and continue to periodically meet up and travel together. France describes Louis in his memoirs as one of the only two people who ever really loved him. It's really sad. <laughs> It is. Like, does this man have parents? <laughs> he does have parents, but he doesn't really ever talk about his parents much, at least in the bits of his memoir that I read. Okay. Not all his memoirs are available in English, and his memoirs also just, like, very rambling. Like, it's yeah. just very blow-by-blow blow everything that he did. Yeah, that's... Yeah. You know. Now they are. Yeah, it doesn't really have a narrative structure as such. Okay. Anyway, so Louis loved him. Yeah, he says in his memoir that Louis was one of the only two people who ever loved him, but... 
his memoir is much more kind of focused on his travels and it's kind of adventure story type style rather than being, you know, a personal memoir about his feelings. Yeah. So we don't get any further insight from him into the relationship between the two men, but it is, as you have guessed, generally accepted by scholars today that they were lovers. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So generally, as we'll get to throughout the episode, it's pretty apparent that France is into men. Yeah, okay. And Louis is one of the only two people who ever truly loved him. They were very close. All right. That seems so, good, yeah. That's the step they've taken. That all still seems pretty circumstantial, but I'll allow yeah. it. Yeah, so there's nothing in any of France's writings that explicitly say that they were lovers, but there's nothing in any of France's writings that explicitly says he's queer at all. Yeah, and I mean, once you look and you're like, here is a man who's attracted to other men. This is the man he's closest to for his whole life. It's not a stretch to be like, maybe they were lovers. Yeah. Do we know anything about Louis... Or do we mostly know about Louis through knowing about France? We mostly know about Louis through knowing about France. So okay. I could find very little information in English about Louis. I was doing a lot of like, you know, Google translating of random Croatian texts to be like, are there new facts in here? Yeah. There were not new facts in there. Louis was briefly engaged to a woman. Her name was Bianca Burks. I don't know anything about her. They never got married, but Louis did die quite young. So I don't know if the engagement broke off or if they were just engaged, but then he died. Okay. So that's all I know about Louis' sexuality. Don't know much about Louis as a person either, to be honest. Cool. Okay. Good. We try to live up to the name of this podcast. <laughs> Queer as we've heard of this guy, but that's kind of it. <laughs> I do know that once he got stained yellow from head to toe. Yeah. <laughs> it's my main fact. <laughs> yeah. So, France spent the next few years continuing his studies, receiving a PhD in geology from the University of Vienna in 1903. So how old is he when he gets the PhD? He's born in 1877, so what's that make him? 26? Mm, Good. I just thought I'd make myself feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) If you had found, like, evidence pertaining to your degree in your garden as a teenager, that would have probably made a difference. Maybe. If you had an aristocratic family so you never had to stop studying to, like, save money, that might also also have made a difference, yeah. Yeah. So having completed his PhD, Franz began travelling once again, this time into Albania, which you'd heard about both from Louis, who had been there, and from the adventure novels of German author Karl May, which he loved. So Albania's not, like, that far away. Albania's not that far away, no. So it's on the coast of the Adriatic Sea, kind of on the other side to Italy. So that gives you a mental image of where Albania is. If you go east from Italy, you will get to Albania. It's reasonably close, but at the time it was very isolated. It's a very mountainous country. It's not got a lot of natural harbours, despite being on the Mediterranean. So it's just kind of hard to travel to. Okay. And it was, at the time, part of the Ottoman Empire, which is centred on Turkey. Albania is at the very northwest of the Ottoman Empire, where it borders the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So France travelled into the north of Albania, which is kind of the most mountainous and least accessible region of the country. This is where the Bernesha are. Yeah, this is where the Bernesha are. That's correct. Do you want to tell us quickly what the Bernesha are? Bernesha are kind of like a masculine presenting gender role, like an additional gender role that exists in this area. Yeah, so speaking of the Bernesha, France did actually meet one on his travels in Albania. He describes the meeting with this person, commenting that they were, quote, a young girl who renounced her gender so that she would not have to be separated from her father. And then he adds, there was nothing betraying the fact that the handsome and armed young lad sitting and smoking with the men was of a different nature. He doesn't actually have anything else to say on the matter, but I thought that was interesting that we've got a crossover of different, you know, bits of queer history happening here. If you do want to know more about Bernesha, we have an episode titled Albanian Sworn Virgins on them, which you can listen to. So France was quite out of his depth on his early travels in Albania. He didn't speak Albanian. 
He tried to travel with horses, which were very unsuited to the mountainous terrain. And he also struggled to shake off the Ottoman police that the local authorities insisted accompany him everywhere because he was a Hungarian traveling in Ottoman territory. He resorted to announcing plans to travel to increasingly dangerous areas and suggesting he would need more and more police supervision until they eventually <laughs> just kind of gave up on him and decided he was more trouble than he was worth. <laughs> Imagine if when you travelled to another country, the locals were like, here's your assigned police person to follow you around. I mean, in some countries, you do have to have someone, like, an escort. Yeah, I guess that's true. If you go to North Korea, you yeah. have to have an escort. North Korea is a pretty singular example. Yeah, though. it is. That's true. Like, I don't know how much Albania at this time is yeah. really directly comparable <laughs> to North Korea. No, it's not really comparable. Cool. It's more the fact that you've got the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian yeah. Empire, which are two major powers, which are, you know... Not at war, but quite tense. Yeah. And he's coming from one into yeah. the other. And he's an aristocrat, so he's a, you know, a reasonably important guy. So is this for his protection or is this to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't do anything illegal? I would say a bit of both. I think the Ottomans were claiming it was for his protection, but it was definitely also to keep an eye on him. Yeah. Given that we know that in the future he will be a spy. Yes. <laughs> I guess they are looking out for something quite reasonable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think it's unreasonable that they wanted him to have a police escort given the political situation at the time. Mm. But he obviously didn't want a police escort. The area was also quite unsafe. On the road from Prizren, which is today in Kosovo, to Škodra in Albania, France was shot at by an unseen assailant. It may have been somebody just trying to mug him, or it may have been someone who didn't like the idea of a Hungarian aristocrat traveling in the area and wanted to dissuade him from his travels. The bullet went through his hat, but left him unscathed. Well, that's pretty close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the mental image of him like calling the police station and being like, I'm going base jumping tomorrow, so you better send someone. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty much the idea. He would turn up and be like, I'd like to go to the most dangerous place I can think of. And they'd be like, mm, you'll need 50 police with you. <laughs> and it just like got increasingly ridiculous till they let him go. <laughs> At which point they were like, you know what? You need 50 police to be safe here. So we're just going to send you with none. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are definitely situations in his life where the Ottoman authorities seem to have deliberately sent him into areas and been like, oh, we encourage you to travel there. That'll be great. Off you go. And he immediately gets mugged or something like that. Like, oh. they do consciously send him into dangerous situations. Oh, okay. So well, I thought he was consciously sending himself into dangerous situations, but now you're telling me that the police are also like, yeah, no, go on, do it, mate. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a standoff. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I guess the police don't want to do this stupid job either. There's just some authority saying that they have to. Yeah, it's definitely an ongoing situation where they don't really want him in the country, but they don't seem to want to fully kick him out of the country. It's, like, very politically delicate. Okay. Yeah. This idea, like, oh, we can't kick him out because he's a Hungarian aristocrat, so let's just, like, constantly harass him and put him in danger of death is, like, all right, that's a way to deal with that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, okay, I accept the situation. So despite that situation, France would return many times to Albania over the next 10 years or so. And as he'd previously and continued to obsessively study paleontology, he now turned his focus to Albania. Is Albania, like, big for paleontology? He did do a lot of work around geology... Okay. Some paleontology, I think more geology in Albania, looking at kind of the movement of the tectonic plates, that okay. kind of thing. I guess it's mountainous, that makes mm. sense. Yeah, that's where the tectonic plates meet, at the mountains. Yeah. That's as much as I know about geology, don't ask me any more <laughs> questions. <laughs> so as far as we're concerned, it's just like going to mountains and being like, mm, 
tectonic plate there and they're just like going home. Nice. Like, yeah. Nice. <laughs> the tectonic plate stuff was like quite a new development at this time. Yeah, it was quite new at this time. So by his third trip to Albania in 1905, he now spoke Albanian well enough that he didn't need an interpreter. Good and one. he forged strong relationships within Albanian communities. So he became blood brothers with two Albanian men, Karim Sokoli and Dagobia, and he also became the godfather to two Albanian children. Ooh. So let's talk a bit about what France was actually doing in Albania. Firstly, as I said, he was doing geological and paleontological studies. So he was collecting rock and fossil samples, looking at the movement of tectonic plates and that kind of thing. On his 1907 trip to Albania, he describes how he came across quote, some interesting Cretaceous rock formations, which he stopped to break open in search of fossils. He then talks about how his Albanian companions set aside their rifles to make their first paleontological discoveries. And he generally makes an effort to point out situations like this one, where he's working alongside Albanian people. Mm -hmm. Albania at the time was stereotyped as being very violent and dangerous, and Albanians were stereotyped as being very violent and uncultured people. And France writes that it was a pity that the scene of these Albanians discovering fossils was not observed by one of the so-called reporters who write those dreadful negative stories about the savage Albanians. France was also very interested in Albanian history, culture, and language, and he published several books on these subjects. So what sort of audience are these books aimed at? I think it's mostly for, like, other kind of scientists, educated, aristocratic, like that kind of level of society. Yeah, more Francis. Okay, yeah, who might want to go to Albania. Yeah, who might want to go to Albania or want to learn more about Albania. Yeah, he's definitely throughout his life pretty continually writing to other men like him, other well-educated aristocratic men to get books and papers and information of what they've studied about geology, paleontology, Albania. So there's this whole kind of exchange of information going on Mm -hmm. among that level of society. So these books explicitly aimed at dispelling racist rumors about Albanians or is it sort of a bit like beyond that? It's a bit beyond that. It's quite in-depth, like ethnographic work. Cool. But he does also aim to dispel racist stereotypes, yeah. France's travels also had a political motivation. So as I've mentioned, there was tension between the Ottomans and Austria-Hungary over control of the region, and France was in close contact with the Ministry of War in Vienna, providing them with information and maps of Albania. There is some debate among scholars about whether France was first and foremost a scientist and ethnographer whose activities happened to make him a useful informant for the Austro-Hungarian government, or whether he was an Austro-Hungarian spy from the beginning using this interest in science in Albania as a cover to do spying work. Even that he put so much effort into ditching his police escort. (laughs) Suspicious. Yeah, and also his first trip to Albania was funded by his uncle, also called Franz Nopcha, who was quite a high up important person in the Austro-Hungarian court. So that's, you know, a factor to consider. But he is also genuinely, and it's really clear from his letters and stuff like that, incredibly passionate about geology and paleontology and Albania as a country. So basically what happened is that the Austro-Hungarian government was like, hey, we'll pay for you to go and study bones in Albania if you tell us some stuff about the government. Yeah, and he was like, seems like everybody wins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I don't think, despite people having this debate, I don't think it's like one or the other. It's just, I guess, at like what point did it become both? Yeah. And it seems from pretty early on that he was doing this kind of spying work. Like Dakian Munton notes that in his early trips, like in his first trip, he's taking a lot of photos of like bridges and infrastructure that wouldn't be interesting to just, you know, a random traveler who's interested in rocks, but would be very useful to the government. Mm -hmm. So unsurprisingly, the Ottomans were, as we've discussed, unimpressed with his presence in Albania and were pretty continually trying to either restrict his movement within the country get him out of the country, put him in dangerous situations. 
Yeah, now you've told us he's a spy, that does seem somewhat fairer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, look, I don't think they were being unreasonable given the circumstances. This did lead to him having to hatch various schemes to try and not dad Valvania. On one occasion, he describes how on a hot afternoon, he and his companions simply plied the customs guards at the Albanian border with drinks until, quote, satisfied at having been treated to raspberry syrup and coffee for over an hour, he did not even think of asking for my passport. And that way he was allowed to enter the country without being identified as the guy who shouldn't be traveling around Albania. (laughs) I wonder if that would still work today. (laughs) Maybe if you got the right border crossing. How did they initiate this? Yeah, can I have your passport, please? What if first (laughs) a little bit of raspberry syrup? (laughs) And then that goes on for an hour. Yeah, yeah. And now would you like a coffee? (laughs) I was really expecting them to be alcoholic drinks. No. Yeah. Like coffee and cordial. It's just some nice little refreshing beverages on a hot day. <laughs> they didn't get him drunk. They just distracted him. Till he was like, ha, those guys seem nice. Off you go. Wait a second. <laughs> a lot of his stories about how he managed to successfully travel around Albania basically come down to him bluffing his way through situations. He'll be like, mm. I walked into this town confidently carrying my gun, an illegal thing that I wasn't allowed to have, but I carried it openly. And everyone was like, oh, he must have permission because he's not trying to hide that and stuff like that. Yeah. How much like monetary bribes was going on that he just doesn't want to include in his books, do you think? Probably a fair bit. Oh, yeah. yeah cool. I reckon so. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Raspberry syrup. <laughs> I try to remember if he does ever talk about monetary bribes in his books. I really can't remember because it probably wouldn't have stood out to me. I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's trying to cross a border. He's not meant to cross. He's paid some money. Yep. But yeah, he definitely focuses on his just kind of bluffing his way through much more than he focuses on paying his way through. I feel like you did tell us that his memoir is very much kind of framed in a more adventure story way. So he has reasons to want to emphasize that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think that Franz depicts himself 100% accurately in his memoir. He definitely talks himself up a lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He's very much an adventure hero in his memoir. So to leave Albania for a bit, on the 20th of November in 1906 in Bucharest, which is in Romania, Franz met Bayezid Almas Doda, an 18-year-old Albanian man from Stirovitsa a small mountain village in what is today North Macedonia. Bayezid at the time was working in Romania. Following their meeting, Franz hired Bayezid to work as his personal secretary. Bayezid and Franz would spend the rest of their lives together. Bayezid contributed significantly to Franz's geological, paleontological, and ethnographic work. Franz was often sick, and he would send Bayezid to more remote locations to take photographs and notes for him when he couldn't. Bayezid also wrote his own work, which we'll discuss a little later on. So what sort of work is he doing in Romania when they meet? don't know. It was quite common for young Albanian men to leave their villages to try mm. and find work in other countries. So yeah. He's probably working as a laborer or something okay, like that. Yeah. So not like in any kind of relevant field that we are aware of. Yeah, not that I know of, no. As is the case with Louis, it's generally accepted by modern scholars that France and Bayezid were lovers. This appears to have been understood at the time as well. Another Hungarian geologist and paleontologist, Andras Tashnadi Kubacka, wrote in 1937, so this is just four years after France's death, that, quote, it was generally known that he did not care to be around women, and the entire world cast suspicion on him concerning his Albanian secretary. Mm, okay, that's yeah. very clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if Tashnadi Kubacka 
new friends personally, but they definitely would have moved in the same circles. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that instance, it kind of doesn't really matter if he knew him or not, right? Like, if he knows him personally, then that's more compelling evidence. And if he doesn't know him personally, well, he's heard that rumor, even though they don't know each other. Yeah, yeah. So So... I guess either way, everyone at the time was talking about how he was queer, even though France never himself says that. I mean, how would he say that? (laughs) You know, like... Yeah. (laughs) Not in his published memoir, surely. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, homosexuality was illegal at the time in Hungary, so... He wouldn't say that. So Professor Paul Barrett, who's from the British Natural History Museum, claims that France was, quote, an openly and flamboyantly gay man at a time when it would have been totally socially unacceptable. And he adds, he probably only got away with it because he was an aristocrat. Is he flamboyant? Is that a thing we know? He does generally seem to be a flamboyant man. Okay. (laughs) That part's true. Flamboyant um, in what way? Yeah, and like and his how dress and his behaviour. What are we talking about here? In his dress, the way he's described as dressing, I don't have any examples written down, but the way he's described as dressing, he's described as being quite flamboyant. Okay. Okay, I'm very intrigued by this. Yeah, I'm afraid I haven't right. written down specific outfits that he wore, unfortunately. No. <laughs> Did he um, write about his outfits in his memoir? The parts of his memoir that I could read that have been translated into English are all when he's in Albania. And in Albania, he generally dressed in traditional Albanian clothing. Okay. And he says he found that if he did, then Albanians were more comfortable around him and trusted him more, basically. Yeah. So that's what he's wearing throughout his memoir. But yeah, I don't think that Paul Barrett is being accurate when he says he was openly and flamboyantly gay, because from the sources, it seems much more to be, you know, rumored than anything France has ever stated openly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As far as I'm aware. You know, what he said in the privacy of a room with only his friends, who's to say? In any case, that doesn't count as being openly and flamboyantly gay. Yeah, I would not, as far as I'm aware, describe him as openly gay. Okay. Although it does seem quite common in, like, modern, more, like, popular history articles about him and stuff to describe him in that way. Okay. Yeah, the closest we come in France's own writings to talking about his relationships or his sexuality is that quote I mentioned before about how Louis and the second man is Bayezid were the only people who ever truly loved him. So I will add that France did name a species of ancient turtle after Bayezid. That's, That's so cool. Very romantic. romantic. Yeah. <laughs> so it's called Kalokibotion Bayezidi. That's nice. Which apparently translates in Greek as beautiful box, Kalokibotion. <laughs> Which paleontologist Gareth Dyke takes as a reference to the shape of both the turtle and Bayezid's ass. I don't know if that's what France had in mind. <laughs> but Gareth Dyke says that with great confidence. All right, Gareth. I mean, even if it's not explicitly a reference to that, having the word beautiful and this guy's name in the name of the turtle is a bit like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, this is the most beautiful turtle I've found. This is you. <laughs> It's very funny to think of him, like, digging up a fossilized turtle's shell and being like, look, Bayezid, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose we have no idea what Bayezid thought about this turtle. No. Sorry, to get back to France's travels around Albania, now with Bayezid. In 1907, France, Bayezid, and a group of Albanians stayed with a man named Mustafa Lita while they were traveling to Bayezid's hometown. They planned to only spend one night with Mustafa. But their host kept delaying their departure, at first citing bad weather and blocked roads, and then a lack of men to safely escort them to the next town. It eventually became apparent that Mustafa was holding them captive. I love how he tried to, like, play this off for as long as possible. (laughs) Yeah, I really don't know why he did that. (laughs) Was he just like, maybe they won't notice. Yeah, it sounds easy to hold someone captive if 
they're just like okay <laughs> yeah i guess that's less effort if he's like if i can string this out for a couple of weeks yeah yeah he was holding them captive because he wanted to demand a ransom so i guess he was hoping he could sort that out before they even realized anything was wrong oh so he was asking like other people for a ransom for them and they yeah. were just like guess we're hanging out with mustafa <laughs> us and mustafa are just good mates <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah all right well uh, okay okay yeah so he was hoping to ransom them to the ottoman sultan thinking that he would be happy to pay the money to avoid a diplomatic incident. Okay. Oh, okay. So France and Baez had managed to convince Mustafa that this was a bad idea and that having a kidnapped Hungarian nobleman in his home would likely lead to either Ottoman or Austro-Hungarian troops descending on his town rather than them just giving him money. That does seem right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, had he already sent the letter or whatever to the Sultan? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sultan, my mistake. There's no Hungarian noble in my town. There was a typo in my previous communication. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess not, right? Like, Otherwise it just wouldn't work. Yeah, otherwise it just wouldn't work. So I guess he hadn't sent the letter yeah. yet. <laughs> I think it does say in France's memoir exactly what the sequence of events is, but I can't remember yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, okay. France's biographer, Tashnada Kubachka, has France put this convincing to Mustafa as, I do not know if you'll especially like the soup that you have served yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's just like an existing phrase in Hungarian that sounds normal, but I thought it was very funny. (laughs) So instead, they persuaded Mustafa to take them to the town of Prizren and hand France over to the Ottomans there as an Austro-Hungarian spy allowing Mustafa to curry favour with the Sultan without risking any troops descending on his town. But why would this be better for France? It's not, but I guess he's not held captive. Yeah, it's just basically like, well, right now I'm in a small town with only this one guy holding me captive. If we're in the city, we'll be able to, you know, hopefully communicate with more people and get away. And it does work. So once they're in prison, France was imprisoned, but Bayezid, who would not, you know, be worth a £10,000 ransom, was able to go free. And so he alerted the local Austro-Hungarian consulate to the situation and they were able to negotiate France's release. France depicts it as him getting them out of it, but I'm trying to think what other source it was. It might be Tashnadi Kubachka. Depicts it as Bayezid getting them out of this. I mean, I guess Franz was in prison while Bayezid, like, went to the (laughs) Austro-Hungarian embassy and was like, he saw this out, guys. Yeah, that's true, yeah. This does seem like a poorly thought out plan overall. The whole situation sounds like a bit of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously this is quite dramatic and that he's being held hostage. You know, presumably there's some threat of danger at play here, but this all just kind of sounds annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the way he describes it does sound more annoying and farcical than, like, generally threatening. Uh, yeah, like, he's going to him like, Mustafa, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's really the energy here. Yeah. So while this was all going on, Bayezid's father heard that his son had been kidnapped. <laughs> okay. And so he also headed to prison with 50 armed men. <laughs> Try and get his son out. Are they like his employees or just his pals? Or what's the situation like? Where did he get them? Disguise in your village, I guess. Yeah, I think they're disguised in your village, yeah. Everyone's just like, oh, I've heard Bayezid's in prison. Let's go get him out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At the time in Albania, there's a lot of gun violence, a lot of feuds between families and villages. Yeah, I think I talked about this in the Vanessa episode Mm. as well. Yeah, so it's quite common to just get all your mates in your village or all your brothers and your cousins together and be like, right, we have to go and shoot a guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. It's quite normal. Yeah. But they turn up in prison, but France and Bayezid managed to convince them that it was all over, it was fine, they didn't have to kill anyone, and everyone went home. 
Okay. <laughs> France was ordered to leave the country because of this incident that he's been a part of. <laughs> they finally reached the point where they were like, I think we can ask him to leave without a diplomatic <laughs> incident. Please get out of here. Yeah. So he did leave. He went back to Hungary and then he just went and round a little bit along the border to a border crossing where they hadn't yet heard that he had been kicked out of the country <laughs> and came back in again. Like, hey guys, you've never heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what But he did. have you heard of this raspberry syrup? <laughs> So once he got back into the country, he rented a house in Skodra and having a house rented in his name in Albania made him a resident of Albania and much harder to kick out of the country. I feel like if you have a law where you're like, okay, that's a resident of Albania and it's hard to kick him out and you have laws where you want to deport people, you should figure out how these interact. Yeah, a lot of how France manages to get away with what he gets away with, I think it's just due to poor communication, partly because they're right at the fringes of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. So, you know, the people actually running this empire are quite far away. Yeah, fair And partly because it's a very inaccessible mountainous area, it's very hard to travel around. So, yeah, probably they should have had the list of people renting in Albania and the list of people not allowed in Albania and compared those lists. <laughs> and then, like, hold on a second. That's the same man. Yeah, I don't think he ever tried to, like, go under a false name or anything at this <laughs> point. <laughs> That's so funny. He's just like, you deported me. Hello, it is I, Franz. I'm back. <laughs> and they're like, ugh, this guy. So while recovering from illness at his home in Skodra in August 1909, Franz learnt that Louis had died of pneumonia and typhus in Constantinople. His memoirs provide little information about Louis' death. He says, I find it difficult to speak about Louis, what I lost with his departure, and what I still remember about him. The following year, Franz stayed with Louis' family in Louis' hometown of Zagreb in Croatia. The family showed him photos of Louis' grave in Constantinople, gave him Louis' papers to publish, along with an old hat that Louis had been very fond of. Franz writes in his memoir, I was in agony. I mentioned before that Franz's memoirs don't spend much time on his own personal emotions. This is probably one of the strongest emotional statements we get from him throughout the memoir. In Vienna in January in 1909, Franz had to plan with another Franz, Franz Konrad von Hotzendorf. So this man is the chief of staff for the Austro-Hungarian military. And the two Frances hatched a plan to smuggle weapons into northern Albania to support the people there in military action against the Ottomans and their allies. The aim is Albania to be independent of the Ottomans and allied with or a part of Austria-Hungary. Okay. And I guess Albanians want this. At least some of them want this. Yeah. A decent chunk of the Albanians definitely want to be independent. Okay. And a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Uh, I don't know the demographic split on that. There's definitely a lot of yeah, different debate within Albania on which countries they should be allied with if they do leave the Ottoman Empire. All right. So as the first step of this plan, France smuggled 25 kilograms of cartridges into Albania on his person. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that looked like. <laughs> Maybe it means like, you know, on his donkey or something. <laughs> Maybe not physically on his own body. And it was planned that a shipment of 10,000 rifles would subsequently be smuggled into the country and distributed. That's a lot of rifles. It is a yeah. lot of rifles, yeah. Imagine what a pile of 10,000 rifles looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, France and Franz Conrad's plan was so secret that the Hungarian finance authorities didn't know about it. And when they came across a shipment of 10,000 rifles, they seized it at the border. Uh Whoops. So it never made it into Albania. Where'd they go? I don't know what they did with the rifles. Yeah, it's just a lot of rifles. <laughs> yeah, a lot of guns. But it is about to be World War One, so I guess oh, yeah. they need a lot of guns. World War One would have been better with fewer guns. Yes. Thanks, friends. <laughs> <laughs> 
1912, during the Balkan Wars, Albania did declare independence from the Ottomans. Good job, guys. And in 1913, the Albanians convened a congress at Trieste, today in northern Italy, but then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to discuss the future of their new country, including what its form of government would be, and if it were to become a monarchy, who its monarch would be. It's always wild to me when countries are like, should we set up a monarchy? Let's choose a king. Yeah, yeah, in a modern context, it seems so bizarre to be like, hmm, we've got a new country. Who will be picked to be our king? And not be like, hmm, let's vote on somebody to leave. Yeah. 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 But that was the situation. Picking a king when there isn't like a pre existing line of kings really exposes how stupid monarchy is as a concept. Yeah, and to me, this whole situation seemed very farcical. So you've got all these different aristocrats. Minor to major aristocrats, all kinds of aristocrats from around Europe, and there's a guy from Egypt, mm. all just coming in and being like, I should be king of Albania. Pick is France going to be like, but what if I was king of Albania? Yes. <laughs> France too is like, what if I was king of Albania? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's more reasonable from him because at least he's sort of been there and interacted with the people and stuff. You know, yeah. I yeah. imagine a lot of these people are literally like, where's Albania again? Sure, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, some of these people had never set foot in Albania, didn't speak Albanian, and some of them later go on to become the monarchs of other countries that are quite far away and disconnected. And it's like, you're obviously just sitting around yeah. trying to figure out, you know. Like waiting for a vacancy to come up. Albania is yeah. special to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And France does say that he makes a speech at this Congress in Albanian. And he specifically is like, I was one of the few people who could do who that. could actually do that. Mm. There are a lot of people there who didn't even speak Albanian. Yeah. So France put himself forward as a candidate to be king of Albania. He notes in his memoir that while he was sure of the support of the Northern Albanians due to the time he'd spent living among them and the support he'd provided or attempted to provide in the case of the rifles for their independence, he lacked funding. He spent he's, all that money on 10,000 rifles. He's a pretty minor aristocrat. He's not as wealthy as a king would be, you know, necessary to be. But he hoped he could acquire the money, quote, by marrying a wealthy American heiress aspiring to royalty. Okay. Okay. That seems like a solid plan, honestly. <laughs> it is a solid plan. It's still just a stupid situation. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It should not be happening, but you know. He adds to that, a step which under other circumstances I would have been loath to take. Yes, we know, friends. Don't worry. <laughs> France's bid for kingship of Albania has led some scholars to suggest that his interest in Albania had always been geared towards garnering power for himself and Austro-Hungary. And as we've discussed, he definitely did act in Austro-Hungarian political interests in Albania. But as we saw with his rifle smuggling plan, it was often off his own bat rather than at the behest of the government. Mm. Yeah, the way you frame him, he really is just like a guy doing his own thing. Yeah, and he does come into conflict with people in the government because of his passion for Albania. Yeah, like he clearly just cares a lot about Albania for some reason. Yeah, and it's hard to pinpoint that reason if there even is a reason or if he just went to Albania and was like, I love it. They've got tectonic plates and... Dinosaur bones and biocids, so I don't really see that. That <laughs> <laughs> just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, writing all those books and stuff surely uh, yeah. suggests a like genuine interest in Albania. Yeah, yeah. Like if he was just going to be there as a spy for the Austro-Hungarians, he wouldn't have been writing all these books and doing all that kind of study. So France's bid for kingship, as the bids for kingship went, doesn't seem to have been taken very seriously by those around him, and he ultimately ended up withdrawing his candidacy. The throne of Albania was given to another European prince, a German man named Wilhelm 
on weed. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear his credentials. <laughs> uh, he doesn't really have any. He's just a guy. He's just got a bunch of money. I think the main things with Wilhelm were firstly that he was German rather than being Austro-Hungarian. So people who weren't Austro-Hungarian didn't really want an Austro-Hungarian mm-hmm. to become okay. the king of Albania because that would basically then make... it's just like it's part of the Austro-Hungarian yeah. Empire. Would it have been so hard to simply choose an Albanian? Yes. A crazy idea. <laughs> I don't actually know of any Albanian candidate. There's a very famous kind of Albanian semi-mythic hero called Skanderberg, like medieval. A lot of them claim descent from this guy, but like the Egyptian guy claimed descent from this guy and like a French guy claimed descent from this guy. So they weren't themselves Albanian, but they were claiming this connection to Albania. And were they all like, my long lost cousin to the others who were claiming descent? (laughs) I guess so, yeah. Yeah, the other thing with Wilhelm Wied is that he was a Protestant, and in Albania, it's quite a like diverse area religiously, but yeah. it's mostly like Catholic, Orthodox, and Muslim. Mm-hmm. So a Protestant was kind of a neutral choice, whereas France is a Catholic. Yeah. So Wilhelm Wied reigned for just six months <laughs> before an attempted coup and the general political instability caused by World War One saw him flee the country, never to return. Well, that went poorly. So that was the end of that. And there's just like no monarch now or we're getting a new one? Then there was no monarch for a while. It was very unstable. There was a lot of change in governments and different parts of the country being controlled by different other countries. It's quite complicated, so we won't get into it. But yeah, basically, Wilhelm is gone and independent Albania is barely holding it together. Mm. And now World War I is here. Yeah. Which will calm everything right down. (laughs) Absolutely. So France spent the first years of World War I spying for the Austro-Hungarian government in Transylvania, Bucharest, and Albania. He moved between those three locations quite a lot, so we'll just go through them one by one. In Transylvania, he assumed a false identity, that of a shepherd named Petru Gorlopan. As Petru, he was able to move freely around Transylvania, keeping tabs on local political loyalties, smuggling operations, and other activities. Does he have sheep? Yeah, he like joined up with a group of Romanian shepherds and just like lived as a shepherd, so I assume they were sheep. Yeah, (laughs) And he would send back information written in invisible ink to his superior, who was a man named Captain Grekel. That's pretty cinematic. I have a question. Mm-hmm. You know how you said he traveled between these places a lot? Mm-hmm. So when he left Transylvania and then came back later, were his co-workers like, where have you been? How did he manage this? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just went to some different shepherds. Okay. Do the shepherds know who he is? I think the shepherds just think he's Petru. Well, who's Petru? <laughs> <laughs> what are his sheep credentials? <laughs> yeah. Why is Petru so bad at herding sheep? Yeah, I'm not really clear on the specifics of his shepherd career. I mean, I presume you could just, like, rock up and be like, I'm a man looking for work. I will help to herd sheep. Yeah, I just wonder if the going away and coming back and going away and coming back was notable Mm. in that situation. (laughs) No idea. Cool. All right. I have less detailed information about his life from here forward because his memoir is not translated from Uh, here forward. So, yeah, I don't know. Groovy. So, in October 1915, he returned from Transylvania to Vienna, only to discover that none of the information that he'd been passing on had ever reached Vienna. Oh, well, that sucks. Grekel claimed that all his letters had been seized by the Romanian post and had never reached Grekel. But as it turned out, Grekel himself was a spy for the Romanians and had simply been gathering all France's letters with all their information and never passing them on. That is very cinematic, yeah. France also travelled to Bucharest, where he hoped to use his position as a scientist to gather information among the Romanian intelligentsia and influence their political leanings. So at that time, Romania was neutral in the war and they weren't sure who Romania would ally with or what would happen there. So that's what he's trying to figure out and influence. Romania 
did end up eventually allying with Austria-Hungary's enemies. And so while they were neutral at the time that France was there, they were already not very welcoming to Hungarians. Irrespective of his spying activities, the lectures he gave were disparaged and his efforts there were generally unproductive. So he's not doing a great job as a spy. <laughs> no, now I actually talk through his spying efforts. He's achieving nothing. I mean, he's giving it a go. <laughs> he's doing his it's best. It's a hard job. <laughs> France was also twice sent to Albania as part of the army, where he tried once again to organize armed rebellions there, this time against Austria-Hungary's enemies Serbia and Montenegro, which occupied the northern parts of the country. Due to internal conflicts within the Austro-Hungarian military effort and the army, he didn't actually receive very much support from Austria-Hungary for this work. So in 1914, for example, he was promised 40 cases of ammunition for use in this rebellion, but only half a case ever arrived. France did what he could to support Albanian refugees fleeing from the occupation with his own money, but he wasn't able to start any armed rebellion. France's fellow paleontologist Kalman Lambrecht, who corresponded with France throughout his life and worked on the Hungarian translation of France's memoir, says that during this time in Albania during the war, France tried to recruit Albanian volunteers to stage a coup and install himself as king. Oh, okay. We have no additional information about that beyond one mention that Kalman Lambrecht makes in France's obituary. Don't know what's going on there. Okay. So Albania suffered greatly during World War I and during the Balkan Wars, which came before. It was politically unstable, partitioned by surrounding countries, and hundreds of thousands of Albanians were massacred by Serbian, Bulgarian, Montenegrin, and Greek troops. France wrote in his diaries around this time that, I cannot get rid of the feeling that the Albanian warrior, the proud fighter, is dead. The battles of the last year had destroyed the self-confidence that was the source of strength of the warriors. He himself left Albania in 1916, seeing himself unlikely to ever return. I think he did go back once to do a little bit more research, but he basically from here on out doesn't have that ongoing connection with Albania that he had. Mm. To look at this time in Albanian history from the perspective of an Albanian, in 1914, Bayezid wrote an ethnographic book about the Upper Reka Valley, which is where he'd grown up. And he writes in that book about his fears for the lifestyles and lives of Muslim Albanians, such as himself, in the face of occupation by Orthodox Christian Serbs saying, It is now to be feared that the Muslim element in Upper Reka will vanish and leave no trace. The purpose of this book is to help my fellow Muslim villagers preserve their identity and to create a lasting monument among the publications dealing with Albania. When those who exterminated the Albanians in the region of Nish, so he's referring to massacres of Albanians by the Serbian army in the 1870s, when those who have exterminated the Albanians in the region of Nish have also wiped out my people, the simplest accurate description of their daily life will suffice to serve as both a permanent monument to their one-time existence and as an indictment to those who annihilated them. That's pretty devastating, honestly. Mm. It is pretty devastating, and his village was raised by the Bulgarian army two years after he wrote this. Wow. So Bayezid's book and the accompanying photographs that he took with it were not published until 2007, but have now been published and serve as a valuable record of life in the Upper Reka Valley. So due to illness, Franz saw out the second half of World War I from his home in Transylvania, where he commanded other spies rather than doing the work himself. With the collapse of Austria-Hungary at the end of the war, the Romanian army marched into Transylvania and Franz made the decision to flee to Vienna. He didn't have the necessary papers, but at the airport, he requested a chartered flight to Schopron, which was close to the Hungarian-Austrian border. Halfway there, he pointed a gun at the pilot and... (laughs) (laughs) and he demanded that they instead fly to Vienna, where they landed safely. This gives France the dubious honour of being the first person recorded to ever hijack a plane. (gasps) He invented plane hijacking. He invented plane hijacking. This story comes from Tachnadi Kubatschka's 1937 biography of France, and I'd like to thank Viola on Twitter for translating it for me because it 
doesn't exist anywhere in English. How did you come across this story? I came across a lot of mentions being like, Franz Nopter, the first man ever to hijack a plane. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And then you just went on Twitter and you were like, does anyone who reads Hungarian, can they help with this? Specifically, it always said while flying over such and such a town, he hijacked the plane and it was quite a random obscure town. So I just Googled his name and that town and came up with this passage in Hungarian. And I was like, I guess this is it. (laughs) And it was. And it was it. So I guess the pilot was like, whoa, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. So in 1920, France was able to return home to Transylvania. He was invited to work for the Geological Institute in Bucharest, allowing him to gain permission to re-enter Romania and also go back home. When he arrived at his family estate, however, he was attacked by the local peasants who oh. beat him badly and broke his skull. Oh my god. Okay. What um, had happened to upset the local peasants? I guess they didn't want the Hungarian aristocrat who they thought had been ousted back. I think this is part of the kind of Romanian-Hungarian tension. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. Gotcha. So Transylvania, previously part of Austria-Hungary, taken over by Romania at the end of the war, and now a Hungarian has come back to live in his family castle. And they were like, we don't want you. They're like, we don't want you back. Go back back to Austria-Hungary. Yeah. So France was taken to Budapest where he underwent surgery, but the injuries had a long-term effect on his health. For the rest of his life, he suffered severe headaches and issues with his autonomous nervous system, which is the system that controls things like breathing and heartbeat and involuntary actions. That does seem key. Yeah. Yeah. So he's quite sick. I didn't even know we had that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we sort of did that stuff. I don't know. So so what is it doing to those functions? So he talks a bit in some of his letters about how he'll get like really, really low heart rate and issues Uh with blood pressure and that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what, you know, all his symptoms are, but I know that's part of it. He like struggles with digestion as well because that's also your autonomous nervous system. So he struggles to eat. He loses a lot of weight. Oh, gosh. It's pretty awful. So from 1925 until 1928, he served as the director of the Royal Hungarian Institute of Geology in Budapest. So he continued working as much as he could. He did much of his work, including holding meetings from his bed. R.I.P. Franz, you would have loved Zoom. <laughs> yeah, I guess he had to just get all his colleagues into his bedroom. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't even think about that. I guess the subconscious part of my mind was just like, yeah, on Zoom, <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> Yeah. So in October 1927, Franz underwent an operation known as the Steinach operation, aimed to treat the issues with his nervous system and what he describes as premature senility, which appears to refer to fatigue and issues with cognitive function. This is going to involve like putting a monkey testicle in him or something? Not quite, <laughs> but not that far Okay. Off. So yes, Eugen Steinach did invent an operation where he would take testicles out of monkeys and put them in people. I have never heard of this. <laughs> it's basically very early hormones therapy Mm, okay okay. so they figured out that testicles produce testosterone and they're like what if we give you extra Um, testicles yeah yeah and steinach also does operations basically aimed at curing homosexuality so another of his operations is one where he will take a testicle from a heterosexual man and put it in a homosexual man with the aim of giving him a good heterosexual testicle that will produce lots of testosterone make him manly and make him attracted to women who are these straight men who are, like, donating their testicles to this? I have no idea. It's a great question. Yeah, it might be when people die yeah. or something. But, yeah, yeah, a lot of the early sort of, like, hormone, like, synthesizing and stuff is done not, like, aimed at trans people but aimed at, like, cis people wanting to be extra their gender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. also very tied up with the eugenics movement yeah. in, uh, you know, not just Germany but certainly Germany at the time. Yeah, so the Steinach operation particularly that France underwent is a partial vasectomy 
anatomy, generally only done on one side, with the idea that it would shift blood supply away from sperm production in the testes and instead towards testosterone production. Okay, sure. It's disproven. It's not real. Might as well give it a crack, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Steinak wrote that as a result of his operation, men, quote, changed from feeble, parched, dribbling drones to men of vigorous bloom who threw away their glasses, shaved twice a day, dragged loads up to 220 pounds, and even indulged in such youthful follies as buying land in Florida. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have an operation that can make you buy land in Florida. Like I've what? always been unclear on to what extent Steinak just, you know, didn't understand science as well as we do and to what extent he was like uh, a people. snake oil salesman. And that quote really makes me lean towards the latter harder than I previously had done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I would lean towards the former, I think. I okay. think he thought he was doing genuine science. Like he started with experiments on rats and like there was a lot of experimentation involved. <laughs> But how does he handle the fact that this is simply not what happens when you give a man a, like, partial vasectomy? Yes, that's a good question. They definitely believed at the time this was what happened. Like, you see these papers where they list all these men who had this operation. And they're like, yep, this guy had improved vitality. This I guy had improved sex drive. Like, like, a lot of this is probably placebo. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think it is placebo and just, you know, shoddy methodology, basically. Yeah, even by the 1940s, which is when Steinak wrote that quote, it was already being questioned and people were saying this operation isn't real. It doesn't do anything. Yeah. And when he wrote that quote, that was coming back against people who were being like, Steinak, this isn't real. Okay. So it was quite popular in the 20s and 30s, but it wasn't too long before people were like, this, this does nothing. And, yeah. and then in the 30s, people synthesized testosterone anyway. So like, yeah, yeah. Kind yeah. <laughs> it's kind of irrelevant. Right? Yeah. And putting monkey testicles into <laughs> or whatever anymore. Steinak writes that in his book in the 40s. He's like, look, people are synthesizing testosterone now, but I really started this field with putting some straight guy's testicle in a gay man and I making mean, him straight. Like, I guess so. Which I guess you know? he did. Imagine if that had just been true. I didn't like HRT still today was just like all right <laughs> time to go testicle. get the monkey testicle operation <laughs> I don't know that would just be a different world that would it? be a different oh, world right. we'd all have like monkey and our business and stuff <laughs> <laughs> anyway this is this isn't good <laughs> this is bad this is bad yeah so at the time quite a lot of people underwent this operation Freud had it oh really <laughs> oh well I mean why would we have questions why would we question anything he did um, it's not like he's a big freak or anything no not at all. <laughs> So the Steinach operation was generally seen to just cure everything at the time. Australian sexologist Norman Hare in 1934 wrote, In successful cases, it may lower high blood pressure, increase muscular energy, stimulate appetite for food, relieve insomnia and indigestion, cause improved nutrition of skin and renewed growth of hair, improve power of concentration, memory, temper, capacity for mental work, and possibly increase sexual desire, potency, and pleasure. So it's just going to fix you. All right. (laughs) Cool. All right. (laughs) So Franz writes that he undertook this operation to deal with these issues he had following his beating and broken skull. Tashnari Kubachka, his biographer who wrote that biography not long after he died, claims that Franz underwent the Steinach operation due to his sexuality. He writes that, quote, about his sexual conflict, so this is right after he said that France wasn't interested in women and there's rumors about him and Bayezid. He writes, about his sexual conflict, he explained that he had undergone the Steinak operation and the quote, so this is a quote from France within Tashnada Kubachka, rejuvenation put to the test in sexual intercourse. France himself in the direct writings I've seen from France said it's to deal with these issues he was having following his head injury rather than to deal with his sexuality. I haven't seen all France's writings because they're not all in English. 
Tashinari Kobachka doesn't source this quote about his sexuality being put to the test through sexual intercourse. Hmm. So it's not clear to us exactly why Franz did have this operation and if it was to do with his sexuality or not. I mean, it may very well have been both. It may have been We've both. established that the like guy claims that this operation will solve all of your problems. Yeah, like the operation was generally seen to be very broadly beneficial. We know of many men who had this operation not because they were gay and didn't want to be, but just because they felt that they didn't have enough energy or that their libido wasn't as high as they would like it to be or, you know, various things, some sexual, some not even sexual. So the Steinach operation has been debunked, to be clear, but Francis Health did happen to improve somewhat around the late 20s. Okay. And around 1930, he bought a motorbike and with a chauffeur riding in front of him, began to travel around Europe doing more geological and paleontological research. Why go on the motorbike if that's the setup? I think just vibes, honestly. I All think right. just vibes. He, <laughs> yeah. like, loves his motorbike. Okay, fair okay, enough. Okay, he's sure. just very passionate about this motorbike. I'm glad he's in good enough health to ride a motorbike. Yeah. yeah. He writes this very funny letter to his friend Friedrich Hühner about how much he loves his motorbike and also about, you know, the issues he's having with his motorbike at that time. And he writes, The roadster became sick in Paris. Now it is in a roadster hospital. <laughs> <laughs> in brackets, a motorcycle repair shop. <laughs> But he also, like, sent Friedrich this whole report. He says, I'm sending you a report with photographs for your enjoyment of my motorcycle travels. <laughs> so he's just, like, so excited about his motorbike and his travels. We're not clear if Bayezid accompanied him on these travels or not. I read some secondary sources that said that he did, but no primary sources. And historian Christian Chapladegovic notes that there are no photos of Bayezid with him when he's traveling around on the bike and no specific records of them being together at that time. Are there usually photos of Bayezid on his previous trips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are photos of them together at other times. So we can't assume that this is just that Bayezid holds the camera. Yeah, Bayezid definitely did take a lot of photos. Like, as I said, in his own book, he took the photos for that book. But there are definitely also photos of them together at other times. So Chapla Degovic thinks that there was some kind of breakdown in their relationship at this time. We also have some mentions of Bayezid being in Vienna around this time. But, you know, France is driving around on his motorbike, coming back to Vienna, going out again. So it's not entirely clear. Maybe Bayezid was simply busy. He was doing something else. He had a job. He was, I don't know. Mm. Bayezid got quite involved in kind of like Albanian expat politics in Vienna. Okay. So he was also doing that at the same time. Maybe he was just busy. So he appears to have become quite involved and connected in kind of Viennese high society and political circles. But we don't know that much about it. This guy has gone on such a journey from, like, remote village in Albania. Yeah, he has. And Bayezid, we know, also struggled with alcoholism and with a gambling addiction at this time. It seems that France and Bayezid did continue to live together when France was in Vienna, however. And this brings us to the end of France's life. So on the 25th of April 1933, struggling financially and suffering from depression, France shot Bayezid and then himself, and both men died. France left a note behind which explained... The motive for my suicide is a nervous breakdown. The reason that I shot my longtime friend and secretary, Mr. Bayezid Almas Doda, is that I did not wish to leave him behind, sick, in misery, and without a penny, because he would have suffered too much. France was cremated, and his ashes interned in the Vienna Central Cemetery. Bayezid was buried in the Muslim section of the same cemetery. So, I know that we've talked about him being in poor physical health, mm. but has he been having ongoing mental health problems as well? Or it sort of feels like this comes out of nowhere, even though we knew it was coming. Mm. It's hard to tell from his writing because he's obviously very unwell 
a lot mm-hmm. and struggling to do a lot of things, like, you know, struggling to get out of bed and yeah. do work and that kind of thing. And it's not always clear exactly why. So he does use the word depression earlier on to describe what he's experiencing, but it's within broader descriptions about issues with his physical health. Okay. So I found in reading it that it wasn't clear if he was talking then about his mental health or if he was using the word depression just to kind of mean a physically period of kind of reduced capability yeah yeah so i would like if he was generally talking about the kind of cognitive issues or like brain fog kind of stuff he's been having yeah because he does seem to have that as well so yeah i would say it's hard to tell where the line is between physical and mental health when he's talking about his health issues and we don't have any sort of information about like prior sort of violent instances stability or anything like that like between him and Bayezid or otherwise no no I can't think of any other examples of any kind of domestic violence or anything like that and this seems to have been within the depression he was experiencing a thought out action in that he put his affairs in order he did it while Bayezid was asleep and he wrote down I've done this because I've had a nervous breakdown and I don't know how he'll cope without me I mean, yeah, I think there's not really a lot we can say about that apart from it's a terrible tragedy. Yeah, I think it's a terrible tragedy of the lack of mental health care at the time. I think in a really unfortunate way, it does sort of lend more credence to the understanding that these two men were lovers as Mm. well. You know, this idea, oh, this person won't be able to go on without me. Like, I know he cites financial reasons, but it does seem more natural between two lovers than between, you know, someone and then their employee. Mm, yeah. Tasnadi Kubachka writes, and I don't know where he got this information, that in the days before, Franz had asked his housekeeper to marry Bayezid okay. as a way of kind of setting Bayezid up with some other kind of partner and stability, mm-hmm. but she didn't. Okay. So I guess that also kind of... Yeah, that he wanted someone to take the role that he had and that role was a spouse. Yeah. If that's true, there seems to be a lot of unsourced claims going around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the reason that I didn't mention that originally is because Tashnadi Kubachka's work isn't sourced at all. Yeah. It was written close enough to France's life that it seems like he didn't really feel the need to provide sources. He was just kind of like, well, this is what happened. We know because it happened three years ago. Yeah. I mean, it is just unfortunately much more common in like early 20th century etc biographies for them to not cite anything yeah and it's not necessarily an indication that this hasn't come from somewhere it's just that it just wasn't the practice yeah it just wasn't the practice which that does you know cause us problems every now and then but it is how it is yeah so i want to end this episode not with the tragedy of france and bias its deaths but with something a bit more positive from france's life so my favorite part about france is the sheer enthusiasm he had for his work and for everything he did so I want to end by reading you part of one of his letters to his friend Friedrich Hörner, which shows his enthusiasm and passion for his work. So Franz first met Friedrich in Tübingen in Germany during his travels as a student. So those same travels he met Louis on early mm-hmm. in his life. Mm-hmm. And Franz recalled that he spent some time in Tübingen and he and Friedrich, quote, lived in a small attic where we got into the subject, the subject being paleontology, and debated until early in the morning. And they remained very good friends and correspondents throughout their life. They would send each other written work about dinosaurs, sketches of, you know, dinosaur fossils they'd found or how they thought dinosaurs looked and moved, and even physical fossils in the mail. (laughs) So this letter is just one example of their letters. It was written in 1908 when France was in his late 20s. He writes... Dear friend, exclamation mark. <laughs> In preparation is a manuscript about Albanian geology, another about my trip, 
more a geographic novelty, and I hope to finish Notes on British Dinosaurs number 4, Stegosaurus, when I am again in London in October, and then probably a journey to America. Finally, exclamation mark. Only afterwards can I describe my frightening reptiles. In brackets, they do scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting with greatest interest, the second and following delivery of your dinosaur monograph. Hurrah! <laughs> That will be the best-known reptilian order compilation, despite all that has been published about reptiles. That would be splendid, and one would know as much about the dead animals as the living, to the great vexation of the real zoologists. (laughs) (laughs) With compliments to your wife, and again, best congratulations, because of the final appearance of Triassic Dinosaurs. Yours sincerely, Nocturne. This is one letter, but I had many letters that were just like peppered with exclamation marks and hurrahs about <laughs> how excited he was about dinosaurs. I feel like you would have loved emojis. Yeah, You know people's mums who like use emoji for everything? Yeah, I think he would have been one of those people. And, you know, I read his letters as they've been translated into English and typed up, but I understand that they did include a lot of sketches as well, mm-hmm. which I guess is as close as you can get to emojis back yeah, in the day. That's true. Yeah, that does give a good sense of his personality, which is nice. Yeah. yeah, I found that reading his memoir and reading biographies of him, I didn't get that sense. Mm. And as soon as I started reading his letters, I was like, oh, this man is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite hard reading his memoirs and biographies to get a sense of him as a person because they were so kind of, look at this adventurer who was a spy and traveled in these exotic locations. Mm. Yeah. Like, but who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. And that's who this guy is. He's just very excited about dinosaurs and about sharing what he knows with his friend. He writes a lot of letters to Huna as he's sick saying, you know, I'm sick and I want you to take this part of my work and I want you to do this research because I'm sick and I can't do it now. So he's very like generous with sharing his work as well. Mm. So I wanted to wrap up and leave us with that image of Franz. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we really appreciate it if you leave us a rating out of five stars. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you leave us a review as well, because that helps more people to find our podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we're Queer as Fact. If you want to support our podcast financially, you can become a patron of Queer as Fact on our Patreon. This will give you access to our monthly newsletter, where you can hear what we're up to, access to bonus episodes that we don't publish on our regular feed, and also the chance to vote on episode topics. So our patrons actually chose the topic of this episode. You can also buy our merch on our Redbubble store, and you can find links to all of that information at our website, which is queerasfact.com. We'll be back with our next episode on the 1st of October. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.